Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello, and welcome to Compliance Clarified, a podcast for risk and compliance professionals brought to you by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Each week, we discuss news stories and topical issues from our journalists and regulatory experts in the US, Europe, and Asia. I'm Rachel Wolcott, Senior Editor in London. I'm speaking to Helen Perry, Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert, also in London. Welcome, Helen. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. In Episode 6 of Season 10, Helen and I are going to discuss the UK Financial Conduct Authority's recent success securing an insider dealing conviction. We'll also go over two recent FCA Market Watch newsletters related to market abuse and insider dealing and touch on some updates to the UK criminal insider dealing regime. The FCA secured a conviction against an individual who worked as an analyst at Goldman Sachs' Conflicts Resolution Group. This insider dealing conviction, which carried a 22-month sentence, is the FCA's first since 2019. The FCA also brought charges against the defendant's brother, a lawyer at a magic circle firm in London, but the judge found there was no case to answer and dismissed the charges. The FCA's enforcement co-heads, Therese Chambers and Steve Smart, have used this conviction to reassert the FCA's intention to get tough on insider dealing. But we heard that from the previous enforcement head in 2015. What's different this time? First of all, Helen, can you give us a brief overview of this case? Yes, well, it was a criminal case brought under the criminal insider dealing provisions of Part 5 of the Criminal Justice Act 1993. And it was brought against a young man called Mohamed Zina, who was an analyst in the complex resolution section of Goldman Sachs Investment Bank. And as such, he was in a situation where he was in receipt of lots and lots of confidential price-sensitive information. He was... uh, arrested and charged by the Financial Conduct Authority um, back in 2017. There's been a long delay caused by inter alia COVID and lack of resources in the financial justice system, which was taken into account by the judge in his sentencing remarks. But uh, he had been in, in receipt of all this information and for I think it was a good 17 months, he was in insider trading in that he was buying shares just before price-sensitive announcements were made, which he would have had access to on his computer, and then selling them, um, in most instances, at a profit after the, um, the, the inside information became publicly announced. And so he was charged with six offences of insider trading relating to spe- six specific trading activities. He was also charged with three charges of fraud by false representation because he went to Tesco Bank and arranged for three personal loans, unsecured loans, all of which he said were for um, improving home improvements when they were actually used as capital in order to speculate on the rise or fall, future rise or fall in equity prices. The jury unanimously convicted him on all six charges of insider dealing and all six charges of um, fraud by false representation. And he had a sentence of 22 months imprisonment. 
That's a lot for uh, being on trial for six suspicious trades. Uh, let's talk about his uh, position at Goldman Sachs and his status in terms of the insider list at the firm. His defense was that he was unaware of his insider status, and therefore he wasn't insider dealing. And he did uh, admit to breaking pad the personal account dealing rules, and he was found to have set up uh, accounts in his brother and sister's names. So how could it be that he wasn't aware that uh, he was on the insider list? And what, do, what does his conviction uh, tell us about firms and their management of insider lists? Well, his defense, he, he was defending himself on two particular things. One, that the prosecution could not prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he had traded um, knowing that he was trading on the basis of price-sensitive inside information. His defense argument was that he didn't trade on the basis of information that he received at work, and he did receive huge amounts of information at work, not all of which was price-sensitive. He said that he'd been trading shares for years, that it was a passion of his, and that he had a system for trading, which was based on reading lots, I mean, large quantities of public um, source information, um, which he then traded upon in a very swift trading strategy. He needed to be quickly in, quickly out. If he thought there was going to be a spike or a slump in trades, he wanted to get in and out. And he'd been doing this for years before working for Goldman Sachs. And he argued that he didn't actually, he wasn't trading on the basis of what was on his computer at Goldman Sachs, but on what he was reading in the public domain. So it wasn't on the basis of inside information. But he also argued there is a defence in the Criminal Justice Act under Section 53C, I think it is, which is that he would have traded as he had traded even if he hadn't had the inside information because he was he would have traded anyway. It's a sort of a defence which has been used in a lot, lot of insider trading cases, particularly in the United States. It's called the mosaic defence, where the defence is that I've picked up lots and lots of bits of information from here, there and everywhere, and I've put them together, and I've worked out that there's likely to be a movement in share price. And that's, on the, that's what I was trading on, not on what was on my computer. Now, clearly... The jury didn't believe him. I mean, it's the end of the day. Most of the most of the evidence against him was, frankly, circumstantial, relating to his trading and what was happening with regard to inside information around about the time he was trading, which the FCA can find out about because they've got you know sophisticated surveillance systems for looking for patterns in share trading and look for suspicious patterns, which is probably why they picked him up. Another bit of evidence that he put forward, um, as I understand it, because I was only there for the summing up from the defence, um, one of the evidence that he, bits of evidence that he put forward towards the fact that he didn't, he wasn't consciously trading on the basis of inside information was he said he hadn't been told individually that he was on any insider list. Um, there is a provision in the Markets Abuse Regulation that says that people who need to um, acknowledge uh, that they're on insider lists. Now, Goldman Sachs said they couldn't look to any particular document which would prove that they had personally told him individually that he was on an insider list and that he had to acknowledge it. But that wasn't exactly what the regulation required them to do. But they said he did a test annually 
to the fact that he trained in market abuse, including insider dealing and all sorts of other uh, policies, including personal dealing policies and so on. Well, the jury obviously wasn't convinced that he didn't know he was trading on inside information, irrespective of the fact that he wasn't specifically personally told he was an insider list. The, the prosecution said that everybody in his department, because they all had access to sensitive price sensitive information, they were all on a permanent insider list, which clearly was the, the view taken by the jury. And the insider dealing lists came up in the UBS compliance officer case, which was the FCA's last conviction in 2019. And we were just talking about this case in the U.S. Uh, related to, B, uh, was it BP shares and insider dealing, Helen? There have been a number of cases for insider lists. I mean, the whole issue around insider lists, it's an administrative thing. It's to do with regulatory systems. It's it's. Whereas this case was a criminal case, so they're not quite... I mean, the fact that maybe if Goldman Sachs wasn't properly fulfilling every single jot and tittle of the regulatory administrative thing, that wouldn't have made any difference with regard to the criminal case. It's, it may have just been a bit of evidence. But there have been several cases where people involved in internal control-type situations have been convicted of insider dealing, including Miss Abdul Malik from a few years ago. She was had access in in her job to um, to um, inside information, although she didn't actually need most of the info, inside information that she looked at, and she was on an insider list. Um, but she didn't actually need to have seen most of the inside information that she used. Now, the FCA wrote about this case in Market Watch 60, and in the sort of context of firms should be careful to limit the insider dealing, the insider list to people who actually do need to be on it and that perhaps people were were just kind of putting too many people on the list, um, which is what they said in Market Watch 60. But in the case involving Logica, um, there was a chap who was on an insider list. He didn't do the insider trading. The insider trading was done by the chap who was sitting next to him at, in the office, and he did the insider trading. Now, the fact that he wasn't on an insider list in no way made any difference to his conviction for insider trading because he did do the insider trading. But it can just be evidence of someone's state of mind because insider trading is not an offence of strict liability. They've got to prove an intent to do it, then they've got to prove that they know that they're doing it on the basis of inside information, which is why the issue of insider lists was raised in the case by the defence. Right. And like we were saying, there was also this case in the US where a BP executive's husband was snooping on her phone calls. Absolutely. Yeah. And he made $1.8 million from insider dealing and he has pled guilty to that. So that's another nice example of exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's, yeah, it's exactly like the Logica case. So it was a husband and wife working from home as opposed to two colleagues in an office sitting next to each other. And quite a bit was made of the fact that this is one of the sort of issues of working from home that it can create problems with security of information and so on. But then... The uh, sad thing was in that case that uh, the husband didn't tell the wife he was doing it and then eventually he felt guilty and he told her 
She then straight away and told her boss. Her boss sacked her, and then she then went to court and sued him for divorce. So not only is he going to jail for insider trading, but he's also a divorcee, which is probably financially quite disastrous for him. So the advice is don't do it. <laughs> exactly. And actually, uh, it's interesting about the working from home part, because this was a big anxiety that the FCA kept signaling about during the lockdown period, being really careful about insider dealing, presumably because they knew that people might be listening into conversations that they shouldn't be. And the other thing um, that you mentioned, Helen, was that the FCA picked up on this uh, abusive trading. This is in the Goldman Sachs uh, Xena case using its own surveillance system. And you mentioned that they are quite good about picking up on abusive trading before and after the release of sensitive news. So what, what's your message to people who might be tempted here? I didn't attend the entire trial, which lasted three months. I attended the um, the summing up of the of the defence and the prosecution and the judge. Um, but in the sentencing remarks, which have been published, which um, are on Google, if you look for them, um, in the Zena case, the judge specifically stated that his trading had been halted because it had been detected by the FCA. So I'm just inferring from that that it was detected by, you know, there are sort of algorithmic type surveillance systems which um, do detect trading patterns that indicate abusive practice. So it didn't actually, I haven't actually got anything directly from the FCA saying that, but it's an inference that I drew from the judge's sentencing remarks in the case. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover to the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Another thing that the Xena case has in common with this BP executive's husband's case is, like you said, the damaging personal effects uh, that was something that the judge mentioned, uh, that this was a promising young guy who has now ruined his name and his career. And he also dragged his brother into it, who was up on charges for years. Yeah, And the sister, who probably was questioned about the name in her account, Indeed, I mean, what he was doing was what, what most insider dealers try to do is to try and um, distance their dealing because they've got the information from the actual transactions and they can do it. I mean, there was a case a few years ago where a chap thought he was in a compliance department in CSFB and he thought that spread betting was outside of the scope of the Criminal Justice Act. Sadly, he was wrong, but he was passing information to friends who would then spread bet to try and distance it from himself. But in the, in this case, he opened up trading accounts at three different firms in the name of his siblings. 
um, and one of his siblings was actually charged with criminal criminal conspiracy to commit insider dealing. Um, but presumably, I didn't. I didn't attend all the trial. Presumably, there was an absence of direct smoking gun type evidence. There wasn't any emails between the two of them saying, "Hey, that was a great insider deal we just did today." Ha ha. Um, and the defence put forward, um, submitted that there was no case to answer against the brother, which the judge accepted, and he instructed the jury to acquit the brother because there wasn't sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he'd known that this, this insider trading was going on because the trading was being done by the Goldman Sachs employee, but he'd opened up accounts in the names of his brother and sister again to try and distance the trading from a connection to him. Um, but uh, the, the brother, as I say, was acquitted, but he, he was just starting out a career at a, at a top London law firm. So his career has been, you know, smashed as well, which it's all very sad, actually. Yeah, it is. And that we see that a lot in these insider dealing cases is that or market abuse cases that people open up accounts in their family members' name, which is a fairly despicable thing to do. Um just back on the FCA's market surveillance quite briefly, it is getting a new market surveillance system. Uh that was announced in November as part of a, a an overhaul of that and getting new technology. And according to the press release that was put out at the time, the FCA is seeking to intensify its efforts in identifying and investigating market irregularities, such as insider training and market manipulation, and in real-time monitoring of market disruptions. It also mentioned comprehensive coverage of global equities, options, futures, and the FC, FX market, but nothing about fixed income markets, which has been the subject of FCA interest, but uh, presumably the new system covers that as well. But speaking of uh, fixed income, Helen, the FCA has issued two new market watch newsletters, one on flying and printing, which is something it has mentioned before and another on organized crime groups being involved in insider dealing. MarketWatch 76 on flying and printing in non-equity markets does take rather a exasperated tone and says management, i.e. the first line of defense, isn't dealing with this behavior robustly enough. What are some takeaways for firms here? And can we assume some enforcement investigations are on foot? Well, I mean that could be the case. I mean, what they they have discussed this previously in Market Watch fifty seven. I mean, it's not actually an insider dealing specific thing. This is market manipulation, creating false impressions as to the price and value of securities and so on. But um, they obviously have got something afoot for them to actually come up and publish this warning in Market Watch seventy seven to address the matter of flying, what they call flying and printing. Um, flying is suggesting interest in trades that don't exist and printing is when you're suggesting that you've done trades that you haven't um, and they're just to create a false impression and perhaps manipulate the price of securities in their in their interests but if they're particularly addressing fixed interest markets well we'll have to wait and see I think but maybe there is something in the pipeline. Maybe it's something I've heard anecdotally is been of specific interest over the last few years and that when the FCA had gone into 
do some supervisory work on uh, firms' own market surveillance systems. They were looking at the uh, capabilities the systems had in uh, detecting market abuse in fixed income, which, I th- if I remember correctly, isn't a particular strength for a lot of these surveillance firms. I'm sure we'll maybe hear from some of them claiming the exact opposite now. Well, we'll see. Um, on to the other market watch, market watch 77. There was a case a few years back in the U.S. where enforcement agencies prosecuted a hack to trade group. Um, these hackers broke into the networks of two firms that helped publicly trading firms file reports with U.S. security regulators. So this was Donnelly Financial Solutions and Top and Merrill. These were Russian uh, individuals who had hacked in to uh, these two groups. They were able to make about $90 million. Uh, the regular ringleader was convicted of this in the U.S. last year. Market Watch 77 talks about inserted dealing threats related to organized crime. What, what do you make of this warning? Well, I must say that when I was actually writing a few years back about the um, Abdul Malik case and uh, her friend, Mr. Shukher, um, I actually wrote two articles for regulatory intelligence, which showed a quite a, a complex and extensive link to organized crime and well organized in the sense that it was a ring of insider dealings it wasn't just those two they were connected to all sorts of other cases and we can add links to those um, articles uh, if you if, if you like Rachel so it's not a new thing um, I mean organized crime has been involved in abuse, abusing financial markets since time immemorial I mean there were many many cases back with the mafia back in, in the day um, we used to get people employed inside firms as security guards who'd look at rubbish in the bins and all sorts of of things that they ways and means of getting access to inside information so the the fact that organized crime groups the fca is talking about that now obviously indicates that they've got something specific afoot but it's not exactly a new phenomenon it's been there forever in a day i think maybe it's more it's more russians than italians now <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, there's always been stories. You mentioned the mafia. There, there was, you know, pump and dump schemes with penny stocks in the U.S. And these date way back. It might be interesting to find out more about that typology that they're seeing. Maybe there's some new wrinkle on it. Yeah, there's not too much information. There's not too much detail in markets. Market Watch 77. It's a bit of a flag flagging up an issue, but it doesn't give too much away. I think we'll have to wait and see what what comes comes next. Exactly. But another thing that's been going on here in the UK is that last year the insider dealing regime was updated. Um, what what changes have been made and what other changes are coming? Well, as I mentioned, Miss the, the, the chap who who thought that spread betting would be fine because it wasn't in the um, in, in covered by the, the criminal insider dealing legislation, which is as I say the Criminal Justice Act nineteen ninety three, and there is a schedule in that act which lists the the types of securities that are within scope of that and that has now been extended it was extended last year is now covering um otfs and mtfs 
even if they're not run by the AIM market. And it also extends to further types of securities that related to some related to collective investment schemes and all sorts of things that weren't in before. So it's worth having a look at that. So the statutory instrument that came out last year. But if you just look at the schedule, I think it's schedule two of the act, it gives you it will list all the specifics and how it's been changed. But there have been a few changes and they've they've also extended it to cover some US markets. New York Stock Exchange, I think, and NASDAQ, and also some of the Swiss markets. So it's it's gone uh, quite a bit further in terms of markets and instruments. So it's worth checking out the schedule and updating one's you know staff. That it is a broader a broader reach now. That's been around for about a year, and ESMA has been worrying about a commission proposal about restricting the use of insider lists just to permanent insiders. And ESMA isn't very happy about it because they think that's going to um, make it harder for enforcement cases to be to take place within the, with regard to insider dealing. So we'll have to see what happens with that. But that's just a proposal. It hasn't actually been put into law. I mean, ESMA's probably um, consulting a bit on it at the minute. But it, it's an EU thing. It wouldn't... It's not applicable to us directly. Okay. And before we wrap up, Helen, uh, what's the latest with the thorn in the FCA side, uh, Mr. Dharam Prakash Gopi? We talked about him in a previous episode. After he was found to be a vexatious litigant, he filed something like 30 challenges to the FCA's confiscation order we always think it's the end of the line for Mr. Gopi. Um, well, it might be. I mean, they've decided now that he's been so flagrantly in refusing to comply with the confiscation regime that he's been sent to jail for 11 years for fa- failing to um, produce the goods under the confiscation order. It might, if he does pay all the money back... They'll probably let him out of jail, but they won't until he's paid it back. It was something like five million quid, right, Helen? Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot, yeah. yeah. But no, he's gone down for 11 years. He has been in jail once before, but he's been out and then now he's going back in. Yeah. Well, hopefully they've taken away his uh, iPhone so he can stop uh, bugging the FCA and wasting everybody's time. Absolutely. Absolutely. <sighs> Brilliant. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you. That's it for this week's Compliance Clarified. Your feedback is important to us, so please give us a rating on your podcasting platform of choice, or you can get in touch directly. Our contact details are in the show notes. For more information about regulatory intelligence, please search for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence or check the show notes for a link. Goodbye. Bye. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.